Today on the Hay Kings podcast, I'm joined by John Guile. We're going to spend a lot of time talking about hay and equipment and hay production on the East Coast and the Shenandoah Valley, how John got where he is today and, and some of the lessons that he learned along the way. John, you farm in a unique part of the world. Tell me about that nutrient management plan. Uh, Rockingham County, uh, it's in the Shenandoah Valley of Virginia. We are the number one county in, or the number one ag county in Virginia. Uh, we are rolling hills. There are areas that have some flatland, but unfortunately, I don't have but one field that's considered flat. <laughs> because we are a intensive poultry operation, a poultry county, uh, there's a lot of turkeys and chickens. Because of that, uh, they felt the need uh, to make sure that that byproduct is managed properly. Uh, interesting enough, we also have a lot of dairies, or at least used to. Uh, those numbers have gone down significantly. But the dairy industry is, well, it also has nutrient managed plans, is, is not as managed quite as heavily as the poultry. And so, um, obviously, too much of a good thing is not a good thing. So, the nutrient management plan that we utilize is tied in with other potential, uh, subs- I want to say subsidies, but programs that you can be a part of. And uh, if you do the nutrient management plan, then you are are eligible for those type of projects, such as you're talking about NRCS projects. That's correct. Yes, and so, uh, and you know, for like litter sheds or manure pits, uh, even uh, commodity storage. I even saw a day where they had uh, for even trucks for hauling commodities, grain trucks, even flatbeds. So if for low interest loans. Yeah, it's it's because we're, we're we're it's a fertile area as far as good good soil. It's a clay-based soil, but because of the rolling hills, it's also erodible. So tell me about erosion control methods. I'm from Eastern Washington, and we have the Palouse, which is when I say rolling hills, that's that's an understatement. Mm-hmm. And erosion is a huge problem here too. You know, when I started out, you could do contour your contour strips. Uh, where you would have a, a say, a, I started out with an 80 foot uh, hay strip and an 80 foot uh, crop strip. You would grass your waterways, and end rows would be grassed. You'd have filtration areas, you'd have setbacks for where you could apply manure towards uh, water, bodies of water. Also, the rocks out where, you know, Rockingham County, we have plenty of limestone rock in, in my area in particular. And so uh, those areas would avoid to uh, put manure down too close to them as well because of potential water contamination in the subwater. So as you're talking about poultry litter, mm-hmm. uh, you use that a lot in your fertilizer program, don't you? <clears throat> For years, my dad used it very heavily. It's a case where uh, grew up on a farm that was pretty diverse. We would run 125 head of feeder steers every winter. We would winter usually buy a 1,000 to 1,500 head of feeder lambs and raise the feed for both of them and uh, also the usually about 60 head of feeder pigs. And we also had chicken houses. We would have a surplus of manure, and so it, it's a case where because we had uh, poultry litter and cattle manure and stuff, my father used it quite heavily, uh, and for eight years I did not use any manure at all. I would uh, actually sold it almost like a commodity, used commercial fertilizer. And so at, at this point, I used basically about a ton of broiler litter or, or even uh, have access to breeder manure per acre. And then I uh, do a fuller product as well that I fuller feed with. 
uh, both on alfalfa and on organic uh, hayfields. But then the best, the balance in it, I use, I utilize commercial fertilizer on the non-organic fields in particular. I don't go too heavily with with manure because you know balance is important and and uh, you can you can really while it's really very good for your soil it can also be too much can be bad for your soil. What's your breakdown of conventional versus organic? I raise about a hundred acres of certified organic hays, mixed grass to alfalfa mix. Now last year we were so wet that the alfalfa did not not do well, so I basically. Uh, interseeded clover in those strips until I can convert them back into alfalfa. Conventional, I do about 150 acres, and so I'm around at 250-acre mark. And, and it's nice because the uh, local market here is good. I can, uh, almost all of my hay, uh, my deliveries are within a half hour, 40 minutes at the most usually. Pretty simple for me to move my organic hay, but also conventional hay sells very well for me. What's your primary market for your organic hay? There's organic dairies is the main thing for 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 me. Uh, there's a number of grass-fed dairies. You know, it's it's a case where they will truck in uh, the high-powered, as they call rocket fuel, from other areas up north, out west. For me, my my alfalfa grass mix tends to be under 20% protein. What they get out there is a lot more richer, and so as a result, they they will kind of dummy down, and it works out well. Of course, they get uh, low potassium dry cow hay from me and also the second cuttings work good for their calf hay as well. Most of my conventional hay will go for dairies and for horses for the most part. Uh, there's quite a bit of beef cattle in the area, but uh, I try to shoot for the higher quality. And, and if I fall short, then there's there's always the beef, beef market. And I also have some potential uh, mulch hay if need be, but fortunately, I don't go a lot that direction. If you're lucky, right? Yeah, exactly. Um, you know, I found out early on, it, it, you know, the, your best hay is easy to sell. It's your lower quality hay that if you need to be able to move that to make ends meet. And I also figured out that uh, and developed a wrapped, uh, individually bale, wrapped, mar- a wrapped bale market, and in that way, be able to uh, move that. And uh, that works very well for me as well. Now, thinking back to 2018, you guys had what I would call a rain wreck. We did our our normal our normal uh, rainfall for this area is about thirty six inches. Tendency the of the valley is to be a little more arid during the summer times. Potentially, you would have a, a couple weeks of hot dry weather. Last year was a case where we had right around seventy two inches. A lot of fields where you mowed around a lot of areas because it was water standing, and and I say that that's kind of interesting because. It's on a hillside, so uh, you know when you saw the dispine tires get wet, you would swivel and turn and go around. For two mowings, we did that, and in the third mowing, I was able to get the bog areas dried up finally enough to do that. Yeah, it makes it very challenging at that point in time. And there again, having a having a, a wrapped market is very very important and and worked out very well for me. You mentioned uh, a disc bind there. Can you take <clears throat> me through your uh, your line of equipment? Yeah, my disc bind is uh, Agco 9635. It's a self-propelled, uh, has a 15-foot, 4-inch quad steel roll head. It's actually my newest piece of equipment. My tractors are your older John Deere tractors. First tractor I ever bought was a 2640. Still have it. I have several 4430s, a 4230. Baylor tractors, a 4640. Rake tractors are 6,400 years, uh, 2750. I have a lot of tractors because I have older 
holder tractors. And in that way, uh, it gives me a lot more, a lot of ability to be able to jump from one, one piece of equipment to the other. I don't spend much time unhooking equipment. If something happens to a tractor, be able to back it up with another tractor. The older tractors are simple to work on. Fuel filters are all the same. Many of the oil filters are the same. My uh, baler is a 4760 3x3 Eston Square baler. There again, it's it's a little more simpler than the newer ones, not as fast, not as high capacity, but it, it works out well for me. Uh, I do have a VR740 New Holland round baler. You were talking about wrapping bales. Mm-hmm. Is that round bales or square bales? I have a square bale wrapper. Uh, that's an Anderson uh, SB780, I think the number is. And it's individual wrapping. Mm-hmm. Um, I just bought that this spring. <clears throat> it's a case where being able to individually wrap square bales is not something everybody can custom wrap and do. And so I, I didn't want to be at the bottom of the totem pole. And so having my own makes a big difference. Wrapping is a good option for me. Uh, it works out well with, with the disc bond to go in and mow one mid-morning, and uh, I also believe in, in tedding quite a bit, especially since we have a, a very humid event every night pretty much with high humidity. Our humidity on average will run 95% or higher every night. You know, there are some some days we don't have high humidity at night, and it'll be uh, like still like 70%, but you know, rely on tedders quite a bit. I rake with uh, New Holland 216 bar rakes, hydraulic bar rakes. They're not the, the biggest or the fastest, but they work very well, and by having two of them, we can cover ground fairly efficiently. The, the wrapping aspect is nice because you can mow one day and in 24 hours pretty much have it in bale form and, and, and wrap it very efficiently. So when your window is so short, uh, it gives you ability to get it off and get a good sellable feed that keeps and also then get the next crop growing. It amazes me how similar things can be and so different at the same time. I grew up with a 2640 on the dairy. I don't know that I've ever seen 95% humidity here. (laughs) Oh, yeah. You know, you can walk out in the grass and every blade of grass will have a big droplet of water on it. Usually you cannot get into a field to do any raking for alfalfa or something like that until typically about 10 or 11 o'clock because it's just so wet. I've had instances where I was bailing alfalfa and it was coming off very nicely in a cloud block the sun, and in about 10 minutes, toughen up to the point where I was in the upper 20s as far as moisture. Wow. Um, it just, uh, we, we just have a very humid climate to deal with. That said, we typically get about five cuttings of alfalfa every year pretty regularly, depending on just how your season lies out, if you can, if you can get it mowed every 28 or 30 days. Right. Bailing at night, uh, unless you're wrapping it, is is never an option. <laughs> and I'm sure on Hay Kings, you've seen the the doom machines that oh, yeah. inject steam in, and I can't imagine what you thought the first time you saw that. Well, you know, I, I can understand it because what the, our situation is is a lot of times around two o'clock, you might be bailing alfalfa, and by two thirty, it's shattering leaves, and so uh, you know you you get a, a window going going dry very short it's it's the window that where yeah. it's dry and starts to toughen up that you have a little bigger chance to get stuff made now um, that is that is the same but for us it's as the dew is coming on in the evening and as the dew is coming off in the morning if it's really heavy and the real ideal conditions out here is when you're bailing at two o'clock in the morning and the dew is just perfect and the leaves are holding good and you're mm-hmm. right running right at 12 13 percent moisture <laughs> that that's living. 
Yeah, that I can't imagine. I just I cannot imagine because, like I say, I, I have fields that face east, and it's nice because they almost start to get get a shadow. At that point in time, I can work down the hill and keep ahead of the shadow. But once the shadow catches up with me, I'm done. I mean, it it just gets that <laughs> moist that quickly. <laughs> That's a pretty fine line. It is. It is. So, uh, but I think your your monitor on your baler is a little more sensitive, the atmospheric moisture that you receive, mm-hmm. and, and so you you've got to if you can watch your hydraulic pressures, and, and that'll also tell you how tight you're squeezing as far as uh, how slippery the chute is. Will also give you an idea of how dry it is as well. Can we dig into that a little bit? I'm not sure everybody, <laughs> all the hay kings really watch hydraulic pressures or even know to look at that. When you're bailing with a large square baler, you set your knotter pressure. Your knotter pressure is achieved by how tight the chute squeezes down hydraulically. Mm-hmm. And so the, the drier the hay, the more slippery it is, the tighter it has to squeeze in order to maintain that knotter pressure. On When I had two balers, my son's, the baler my son was running had the hydraulic pressure reading. My, my monitor doesn't read it on mine. Uh, it's because of the type of monitor I have, I believe. Uh, I would message him to find out what his hydraulic pressure is because mine would be saying 25%. His pressure would be reading a thousand and would tell me that it's still dry. So it's it's kind of a it's kind of a you know your moisture meters are a wonderful thing. Uh, it's but you kind of have to use them with a grain of salt. Even on a small baler, I run a New Holland 580, and it mm-hmm. has a pressure gauge that shows you the, the shoot pressure. Mm-hmm. And you can definitely see as the dew comes in in the evening. We bale a lot of grass hay, Timothy mostly. Mm-hmm. You can see that that pressure start to come up on that gauge as right. as you get just a little bit of dew, and and then pretty soon, if you're not paying attention, bang, and there goes the shear pit. Yeah, well, it's a case where, like, say for us, it it travels so quickly, it just doesn't doesn't take long for it to to be. You're done. Could you give me your thoughts on on debt load and farming and 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 managing the business side of things? I've always been one to try to cash flow as much as possible. Starting out smaller and growing slower is what's worked for me. And and a lot of times, I will purchase not necessarily out of need, but out of a good opportunity. My tractors are old. Most of them, you know, are probably in the value around it between ten and and twenty thousand dollars. Given what the new ones cost, that's a very small percentage. Debt load is something that sneaks up on you, and like say, in in a case with our weather, uh, you kind of depend on a certain number, a certain number of bales, a certain quality of bales. With farming, it's just so difficult to be able to be consistent enough to rely on that. I kind of look at my equipment a little different than some. One of the reasons I like my old John Deere tractors is not only because I'm used to it, uh, but they hold their resale value very well. And for me, I kind of almost treat it kind of like a retirement plan. If something happens to me, my wife has a lot of pieces of equipment that she can sell off independently, you know, a couple at a time, not to get in problem with taxes and, and have something that holds its value. At the same time, it makes me more efficient on the farm doesn't depreciate. I mean, the, the old tractors have just held their, their value very well. For tax purposes, they depreciate. But in reality, if you pay 20000 bucks for a 4440, it's probably going to be worth that for a while. 
Exactly. And you get value out of it. The thing about it is, is it saves you in taxes when you purchase it. Typically, I get to the end of the year, and if I have much cash flow, I usually pay it in taxes. So usually at the end of each year, if I haven't, uh, if I've got room in my buildings, I'll, I'll buy hay if I can. Fill your fuel tanks, you buy your twine, you buy your fertilizer ahead. And of course, with equipment, you can depreciate, I think it's up towards $25,000 a year. And so I look at that kind of an investment into the, the future as well as making myself more efficient. And, and I'm one to like to buy equipment with well, when I can see it, it, it's in its working clothes. I, I like to see the oil leaks it might have or, you know, see how it's been used. And I'd, I'd rather not have, have its imperfections fixed too much because it gives me a chance to do that myself. And you gain sweat equity in that way as well. You know, I have a fairly sizable shop. I haven't been able to utilize it as much as I would should probably. Um, seems like I, I get myself into hauling hay more than I work on my equipment sometimes, but it's easy to borrow money. As a farmer, we're we're given opportunity to borrow money because of our our assets, but a lot of times it comes back to bite us if we we just get too far behind. Maybe out over the ski tips, leaning too far forward. A good used piece of equipment will hold its value, and if you take care of it and even improve it some. What do you think about the way that the forage industry is going with equipment? The efficiency is where it's at. The more I can do without hiring extra people, the more income that stays on the farm. There's a balance there with employees. You almost have to get big enough to be able to keep them working, to keep the equipment working. If I can do most of the work myself and rely on some family and occasional part-time help, then my farm is functional. If you work on a smaller scale and you keep it all close to home, you can make decent enough money not to have so many people hired, but you have to have the equipment to be able to be efficient enough to get to get it done. Do you think there's anything missing equipment-wise in the forage industry? <clears throat> yes, there is a, a need for the ability to gather large square bales on hills. <laughs> My daughter, her favorite job is running skid loader, making stacks of hay and, and help load trucks getting hay in out of the fields. And that works very well for me because not only do uh, I really enjoy working with my daughter, but it's reasonably efficient. But as she's got a full-time job now, it's it's case where she helps me when she's after work. Like I say, there again, the more I can do, the better it is. And so with the stack wagons and stuff like that, they're they're really not quite feasible for me to go that direction. Plus, they're they're really expensive. You need to make good use of them if you're going to go that that route. Like I said, we do have hills here. And I know the guys running stack wagons are putting 300-horse tractors ahead of them. I have several fields that when the 3x3 three three square bale drops out of my square baler, they roll down the hill. And in matter of fact, we figured out in, in, in a couple of the fields that it was almost better to take the skid loader, direct the bale the right direction, and give it a roll and gather them at the bottom of the wash. <laughs> uh, so the downside is, is the only way to get out of the field is back up the hill. How did you get to where you are today? Where do you think your farm's going? My father was quite a bit older. He took over the farm, was renting it from him, renting the poultry operation and stuff, and I was paying him good rents. You know, I knew pretty much where they had hoped it was going to go as far as what farm went where. One of the farms was coming to me, and I was totally satisfied with with them splitting the farms up and and what I was going to receive. Uh, I, I worked for my dad very economically, let's just say. Uh, when I got married at 26 years of age, I was 
you know, it was 1990 and I'd worked myself up to grand total of three bucks an hour. And so, uh, uh, I was putting lots of hours in and, and I don't regret the way it turned out, but I'm not saying I deserved the farm at the same time. Uh, my father couldn't have operated without me. And so that transition was kind of, well, it was a surprise because he, he was, he was one that uh, was very active and then one day fell and, and hit his head and, uh, four day, days later he passed away, uh, so it was a difficult time. Uh, at the same time, it was a case where, where uh, you know, you can remember your 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 parent and health and activity and loving life. Uh, the direction our farm is going, um, yeah, it's a good question. Both my kids just graduated, and I encouraged both of them to get jobs off of the farm. Uh, I wanted them to have the experience of working with people. I wanted them to feel like they were utilizing their education the way they had hoped to. Uh, I also told them that there is room, there is income on the farm if they want to come back. Um, that said, uh, I'm not quite sure where we're at. Uh, it, it's not a process where they're buying it out little bit by little bit, but uh, you know, like say at, at 56, um, I probably should be starting to work on that in that way. Being that we're not like a, a big poultry operation or a big dairy, it's a little different than some people in the way they're, way they're managing theirs, I'm sure. That's just as good a perspective as any, John. They, uh, the, the kids seem to understand it anyway. <laughs> it, it's, it, it's, you know, it's, reality has it. Farm life is not for everybody. There's a level of stress there that, that is hard on farmers, and I think that's one, why, one reason why suicide is so high in farming. Both my son and my daughter did very well in school, very intelligent and very capable. There's a part of me that hopes that one or even both want to settle and come back. And yet uh, the stress that you deal with with trying to guess the weather and trying to guess the economy and decisions you make, it's a, it's a, it's a life that's filled with a lot of struggles and challenges and frustrations, and it's also filled with a lot of blessings. It's a case where uh, there's there's a, a good hope for the future, and yet I, I still want my kids to, to be able to uh, make their own way for a while anyway. When we're talking about horse customers, we're talking about disposable income. That's correct. Tell me your thoughts around that. The horse market's very strong. The, the economy definitely comes into play. I'm not quite sure I can I can say how how much... Faith, I want to put in any industry too much, but if, if you make a quality hay that, that sells well, I know at one point the horse market was was pretty strained. Uh, people were struggling to get rid of their horses because they didn't have the money for them, and, and that is not the case at this point in time. It's this the horse market that's definitely pushing our market, and the, the dairy guys are, are following as best they can. Thank you, John, for joining us. And thank you for all your thoughts. Well, thank you, John Paul. I, you know, it's been a pleasure, pleasure of mine to, to talk with you.